and his financial journey. So Stuart Bowman, come on up, grab a mic, and we'll talk for a minute. Stu and I have known each other for over 20 years when I was um, in conversation with the church about becoming the pastor of Northwake 20 some odd years ago. Stu was the main guy I was, I was talking to and uh, our friendship goes all the way back to those phone conversations when I was living in Dallas, Texas and we were talking about uh, whether or not the Lord would have us or my family relocate out here. And uh, at the time, Stu was, Stu was in sales and I've got to watch his uh, business trajectory, his financial trajectory uh, for the last 20 years. And I wanted you to listen in on a conversation that we wanted to have today about that today. So, um, Stu, why don't you chart for us that trajectory? You were, when I knew you, you were a rising young businessman climbing up that ladder of financial success. And uh, tell us how that's kind of played out as the Lord's directed you and your family? So, um, <clears throat> I was a salesman. That's what I did. So, uh, I had enjoyed that for many years, and, uh, 30 years plus. Uh, so, uh, if I go back 10 years, by this time 10 years ago, uh, we, my wife and I had just sold the home we lived in for 20 years. We'd set out on a new adventure to build this beautiful property and get all the hard work done to develop it. My income was continuing to go on the right way. It was growing and strong. I was so comfortably in a six-figure income and uh, enjoying the fruits of that and God's favor on us. Uh, we built a big home there on this property and uh, uh, moved into that and loved uh, being in, in it. And as we finished building the home, the uh, thrust of the uh, financial engines began to shake a bit and started to, the plane began to nose over and then it went into a full nose dive. We had a significant amount of, of retirement savings. We had some other savings. We had uh, all kinds of different places where we tucked money away and uh, we began to draw on that to survive this temporary dip uh, in income. And then we came to the conclusion that it would be wise for us to sell the house that we had just built and the property. And so we, uh, about that time, it was 2009, and the market was running away from us uh, as fast as we could. The market was crashing away, and uh, uh, particularly for that kind of home. Uh, and uh, it just, we couldn't keep up with trying to lower the price as the market went away from us. And so we had a good balance sheet uh, prior to that. Our balance sheet didn't really help us. Uh, we figured we would just sell the house and take the cash difference between the houses and we'd have a pay-for place and stuff. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, and uh, the income continued to drop such that today it's down. We are officially in the poverty level uh, of income, so we don't have that uh, income anymore. Uh, and we did sell the house eventually uh, in order to satisfy the debt that's going to get out. Uh, without foreclosure, but when we left the house, we didn't have sufficient income even to rent a place. And so we left the house with no savings, uh, no sufficient income, and uh, basically you would say homeless. Hmm. Now, I imagine uh, when you were charting your financial future, this, this was not the path that you charted. No, this um, was not the plan. 
Uh, as you walk through that, how, and, and your plan went aside and the Lord took you down a radically different path, uh, what were the greatest struggles as you walked through that? Well, I suspect my struggle would not be much different from any of you. I think any chair here in this auditorium that's filled, uh, at least from an adult perspective, um, might struggle the same things that I struggle with. Um, if, if you don't think that's the case, then join me in my adventure and uh, see how you react to that. When, you, when I say that, you're probably your gut thinking, Lord, please help me with this. Uh, so, uh, I wrestled with God's love for me, um, because, and was I, was there some great sin that I was doing, because uh, it wasn't just that I was not able to thrive in the businesses that I was trying to launch, but it became evident to me that God was, in fact, withholding from me, in fact, impeding my progress. He was not blessing that, so to speak, because you know God's blessing is financial, right? We, we're blessed if, if we're growing financially, right? So I was not in experiencing the blessing of God. In fact, I was experiencing God's hand in resistance to me. And he and I had a lot of conversations about that that were not happy ones. Uh, I questioned his love for me. I uh, questioned why he would do this to me. What great sin was there? What rebellion? What, what was I doing wrong? And what could I repent of to turn this thing around? Um, I complained to God that he was crushing me and uh, to relent, to just leave me alone. Um, <laughs> and he says, you really don't want me to leave you alone. Um, I'm not crushing you, but I am breaking you. I'm breaking you of a dependence on financial resources. I'm breaking you of a dependence on self. Um, Failure uh, was big in my vocabulary, the F word I called it. It was everywhere I turned. I did take this, you know, failure, 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 and I was really uh, troubled by it. And uh, God says, you know, I want you to be empty. Uh, I, I intend for you this to be an expression of the greatest expression of my love that I can give to you is to free you from these things. So I'm loving you deeply, son. Uh, you can trust me. Stu, um, tell me the difference between the young, upcoming business guy that I met 20 years ago, that Stu Bowman, and the Stu Bowman now that God has taken through this path and walked through this process with you. How has he worked that for good in you as a man? A salesman's always afraid he's going to lose the deal. Right? He's afraid that the deal he has is going to go away or he won't get the next deal. Or he's, a, he's eager to go out and get some new piece of business. And, and there's always pressure of budgets and always these things around you. And just there's a drive that's always there. Um, and God says, um, I'm going to set you free from that. And he did. Uh, you know, there's no real fear of loss when you've lost everything. So there's, what, you know, what else can you lose? And But God's pointed to me really clearly to say, look, you haven't lost anything of significance. The things that you don't have in your possession anymore, you won't miss them in 100 years, I promise you. They won't make a bit of difference to you. 
And so the things that you will treasure, I have kept for you, and they are secure for you by me for eternity. And so it radically transformed this culture of fear that I lived in, a sense of um, worry and uh, um, angst uh, to one where I can rest, breathe deeply, and just kind of be free from the shackles of of, uh, the terror of what may happen or what other people think (laughs) of you. God freed me from those things. And so that was a sweet blessing from him. Um, I I know that throughout your time at Northwake, you have you and Anne have been faithful uh, givers to our church, and we're in the process of asking our people to do that same thing, to be generous to the church that they love. Uh, what, what counsel, what encouragement would you bring to them as they wrestle with that? Um, you know, when we were uh, fat and happy, and we were able to give, and give significant gifts, we thought, uh, and there was a measure, kind of quietly, of pride back behind those gifts to be able to give. Uh, and God has made it clear to us that our gifts now are of much greater significance than those gifts. The opportunity to give now out of less than uh, abundance um, has more merit with God than any great gifts that I could have given before. So if I can encourage you, one, it is to not miss an opportunity, particularly in your need to give well, because this is the test of your trust. This is your opportunity to show God that I'm not, I'm not worried about anything but, but your favor, your approval, your your heart's uh, desire, God. I'm not worried about those other things. So I'm going to cast those worries aside. Um, And then to give generously and let go of fear. Uh, God will provide for you. He will provide for you. He promises to do that. The scriptures make it clear. Um, Jesus said, don't worry about tomorrow. Um, So he said to... He said, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Um, Because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so that truth drives deep into our soul. We can be free to give and and just exult in it, just uh, rejoice in the opportunity to give. So, um, you know, we'll figure out what God has in mind uh, and we'll give, you know, um, and but we want to give out of faith, not, not out of uh, it's in the bank kind of thing. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for sharing your journey with us. Well, I wanted you to have a chance to hear um, from one of our leaders about the journey that God has had him on. And it's evident um, as you listen to Stu's story and you look at the world that we live in that we are called to think differently about our money and our stuff. We really are. And what I hope to do today is prompt you with a couple of ways that will help you in that rethinking uh, process. I, I alluded to the fact that there's some really good news in our capital campaign that we're progressing along, that we are 
within a handful of years of being done with this and being debt-free as a church. Um, there's some more good news. Uh, we've been telling you about our general fund, our on, just our operating budget needs of the church, and that they were in dire straits about a month ago. And our little minimal buffer that we keep has been fully restored by your generosity. We're we're back. The last month's giving has been at our required budget level. So God has used you to strengthen the church in her time of need, and I, I really want to encourage you with that because it's not all good news. All right? Let me show you. Let me show you a chart that our uh, financial folks put together for us, if I can, and I don't think I can. So there we go. Um, what what this represents. I'll explain it to you briefly, is this is the number of families and, and folk that are giving at different giving levels. For instance, here we have about 50-some people, uh, families last year that give to North Wake, but they give less than $100 a year. Um, over on this end, we have people who are giving more than $10,000 a year to our church, and there's a handful of those. So you learn a couple of things from this. One, we're not a wealthy church, Okay. Your little matters much. Your faithfulness matters. We don't have the buffers for you to take a giving siesta. Your giving really matters. It, it really does. It matters, it matters for the strengthening of the church, for the honor of your king as you trust him, as Stu just talked to us about. And as we're going to talk a little bit today, it matters for your own heart. Um, so it really does matter. Now, the other thing that this chart... If, if you look, um, for instance, right here, to the right side here, these are folk that give less than $1,000 a year to our church. These folks are able to give and choose to give a little bit more. If I explain those differently, it sounds like this. 55% of our people are giving 10% of the money. Just think about that with me. 55% of our people are giving 10% of the money. If I put our capital campaign chart up there, it would look pretty similar. And in that case, uh, 86% of the people who are helping us retire our building debt, 86% of the people give about a third of the money. So I'm no seer, Okay. I can't look at those numbers and tell you, everybody on the, uh, to the right of the big tall line, you're, you're in trouble, okay? You are a woeful person, and I don't know that. I'm not a seer. I don't know how much you're supposed to get. That's between you and God. Now, our elders, we know it's not a law that you should give 10% of your money to the church, but we feel like it's a, it's a good guideline, that has biblical roots, that really for most of us, when we're giving 10% of our money away to our church, it gets us in the game of sacrificial, generous giving. And I'm guessing, based on what I look at this chart, that we don't have 50 families living on less than $1,000 a year, okay? Just a hunch, and so probably what this is telling us is that, and it could be anywhere on that chart. It could be way over in, the, in this chart over here that doesn't exist, that people are giving $100,000 to our church a year. 
there could be this disorder in our hearts because we live in a culture that has gone crazy about our money and our stuff. Um, you know, our, our, uh, what, I, what I would say, I'm going to draw back on my engineering background here. We have an imbalanced traffic flow when we think about the church. I, I think our money problems are often descriptive of a heart problem, especially as we think about our church. Um, look at it this way. Most of us, when we think about how we relate to the church, we think about this lane right here. Keep it coming. Bring it to me. Bless me, church. Lots of traffic of blessing flowing to me. And in turn, a little bit goes back. Just saying. We have in our mind, or we think we at least ought to have, eight-lane thoroughfare of incoming blessing to us from the church. And if that doesn't happen, well, this might not be the church for us. Okay. We are much less concerned that there's a, a little one-lane road that flows from us back to the church. I'm not against the church blessing you. I want the church to bless you. I want the church to be an eight-lane freeway of incoming blessing to you. I want you to be blessed in a variety of ways. But it needs for our health for the health of the church and for the glory of our great king. It needs, it needs to be both, both ways. The absence of that is what some people are calling a consumer mentality. We go to the church and we say, is this working for me? And nobody has said this better than a fellow named Matt Chandler. He's a, he's a pastor in Dallas, Texas. I'd like you to just hear a couple minutes of his comments on thinking about the church as a consumer. All right. It means that a healthy church, right? It means that a healthy church is filled with men and women who understand that their time, energy, resources, talents, and gifts were given to them by God for the glory of God, not to be used simply to terminate on themselves. All right? So it's an open-handed community. They give freely of their money, they give freely of their gifts, they give freely of their time. Now, what's the option? The option is what we see in Dallas. All right? The option is what we see in Dallas. That is a catering to capitalism. Here, here's what I mean. The opposite of this is men and women who go, no, 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 no. The church exists to give me a pleasant experience. So I want it to be easy to get into. I want it to be only as long as I want it. I've got a nine-minute attention span. That's what you've got. I want egress, ingress, I want all that. I want to walk in to a latte. Bam, thank you. Mocha, pa, shot of it in there. All right? I want to sit down on a chair that vibrates. I want the music to be poppy. I would like some fog and a laser to draw a picture of the cross while you sing and I listen comfortably from my chair. Then I'd like a message anywhere from 20 to 22 minutes. Don't make me feel uncomfortable about my life. Make me feel good. In fact, 
let's not even talk about Jesus. Let's just reference something that we all have issue with. So let's talk about the fact that we're in a recession and that we need to walk together and encourage one another through that recession. But don't talk about sin. Don't talk about the cross. Don't talk about anything where I might actually have to repent and confess and do business with the deep levels of my heart. I'd rather not have that. And then dismiss in a timely manner. All right? Get me out to my car and get me home after you retina scan me and launch my kid down the slide. I would like my children to have face paint on, a new t-shirt, and for SpongeBob SquarePants to have actually taught my kids how not to lie to me and to obey me. If you're listening honestly, you can sense that that's our culture, that's how we think about consumer, being a consumer in our culture, and that can follow you into the church. Like he said, the church exists to give me a pleasant experience. It terminates on me. Our concern is not about the traffic flow from me into the church. It's almost exclusively from the church to me. Again, I want the church to be this great eight-lane freeway of grace and Christ-centered worship and encouragement and correction and friendship and mentoring and support and care for you. But it is absolutely vital that the traffic flows both ways, that you are serving and giving and being faithful and making sacrifices and engaging and caring and loving and being a friend to those in this room that you are putting others' interests above your own. Now, briefly today, I'd like to talk to you about two things that have the potential to change the traffic flow of our hearts as we think about the church. And the first is the obvious one, and that is to give to the church, to give sacrificially, generously, and gladly to your local church's needs. Jesus said it. It was on the screen there, but I lost it. There we go. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Guess what? Jesus is right again. Okay? Give to the church. Love the church. Give sacrificially to your church with no strings attached and your love for the church grows. Your heart becomes soft, caring, generous. Um, most of you that know me well know that I am a recovering tightwad. Okay, I, was, I come from a long line of tightwads. Parents came through the Depression, Great Depression. Um, and... I am still, I'm still learning how to be generous. Generosity does not come naturally to me. The progress that I've made, I'm th deeply thankful for, but it's been intentional and it's been uh, hard work on my part. Um, I'm not there yet, but I'm getting there. The other day, uh, my car goes in the shop to get fixed. Friend loans me a car to drive while my car's in the shop just out of the generosity of his heart. He does not have to do this for me. He loans me a car. I drive his car for a day or two, and I notice when I get the car, it's... It's about three-quarters full of gas, and when I go to take the car back the next day or two, it's about half a tank, 
And I think, oh, I probably better put a little gas in his car. And I hear this little voice, how much gas? Do you just fill it up to three quarters where you got it? That would be, that's how you got it. You know, that'd be fair. No harm, no foul. And then I hear this other voice. And I think this is the Holy Spirit. And it says, fill up the tank. He gave you the car. Um, you know, for over 20 years now, Steph and I have been giving to the church, trying to follow, if not best, better a little bit, the guideline that the elders suggested is good for our souls, giving 10% of our income to the church. And we've done that. We've done that for 20 years. And if, and if you just do the math without even knowing any specific numbers, that's a lot of money. Over, I started thinking about it, and it's, that's like six figures. That's a lot of money. And as a recovering tightwad, I'm thinking, oh, no, I thought of this week. I thought, oh, no, what have I done? You know? <laughs> Giving all this money away. I might need that someday. Um, but here's the thing as I thought about that after I got over my initial, oh, no, reaction. Um, I am the main beneficiary of that generosity. Not the church. I hope it blesses the church. I believe it has strengthened the church. But I am the one who has benefited from that. The generosity that I have learned, the joy of generosity that I've learned through faithfully persevering in giving to our church is spilling over. It's, it's spilling over into um, helping, helping other ministries outside our church, into people that I know who are in need. It's, it's spilling over to my children in newer ways. It's even spilling over into gas tanks and loaner cars because I filled it up this way. Um, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, see, giving generously and sacrificially protects my heart to serve the church because it's increasing my love for the church because Jesus was right where my treasure is, there my heart goes. It's, it is a law of human nature. Um, giving changes our hearts. And that's my concern with those bar charts, right? I, God will meet our needs. I want him to meet them through you. I long for the fruit that will accrue to your account as you learn how to be generous to our church. It's good for your soul. It strengthens the church you love. And it honors your good and mighty King Jesus because you are, when you give your money, you are transferring your trust from your money to your king, to your God. Um, so just giving to the church helps protect us from that imbalanced traffic flow thing of a consumer mentality. But there's a second thing that changes the traffic flow of your heart, and it's more covert, but it's equally, if not, more important. And that thing is prayer, prayer for the church. Praying for the church you love will make you love her more, and it'll help you slay the church consumer mentality, just like generous giving will. Now, this morning I want to talk to you not, not just about praying for individuals, as important as that is and as helpful as that is, 
I'm talking about praying for the church collectively. When you pray for your church called Northway, Northway Church, when you pray for her, um, and nobody is better at mentoring in this than, than the, the Apostle Paul. Um, <clears throat> a big chunk of the New Testament are Paul's letters to churches, Ephesians, Colossians, Corinthians, Galatians, Romans. Those are all um, churches embedded in those cities. So that's why they have that name. That's If Paul wrote a letter to us, it would be a letter to the Wake Forestians or Wake Foresters, maybe. Uh, I grew up in a town in the Midwest called Metamora. So the letter that he would write to us would be the letter to the Metamorons, which um, <laughs> is probably why he didn't write that letter at that time. But See, and it's interesting, in every one of these letters, every single letter to a church that's recorded in the New Testament, Paul prays for that church in the letter. In, in the Galatians, it's just a short blessing, but in other letters, it's, it's multiple prayers that are recorded for the church in those letters. Um, descriptions of how he prays or actual prayers. And uh, they're not long prayers. Most of Paul's prayers you could recite in less than a minute. But they are powerful, heart-centered, transforming, deep down in here kind of prayers that we need to learn to pray for our church. And so today what, what I want to do is encourage you, we're going to look at Paul's prayers, a couple of Paul's prayers from the, one of the shorter letters that he wrote in 2 Thessalonians. It's a church written, or it's a letter written to a young church in a city called Thessalonica, hence the name of the letter, in Greece, and they were a port city, a fairly large port city. They were kind of like Wilmington would be to us. Uh, it's a letter to a church in a city, uh, kind of like Wilmington. And we learn in the book of Acts, Paul traveled to Thessalonica. And while he was there, as was his custom, he went in for three Sabbath days. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving it was necessary for the Christ to suffer, to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So lots of people are responding to the gospel in Thessalonica. This is how the church was born. But not everybody was happy about it. Um, the next few verses say, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason where Paul evidently was staying, seeking to bring them out of the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they were so upset, Paul had to be kind of spirited away from Thessalonica to another city for his well-being, and he's preaching there at this other city called Berea, and they follow him there. It says, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And I tell you all this because this is where the church that Paul writes this little letter in 2 Thessalonians to, this is where they live. This is their city. And these Jews, they're the neighbors that they are charged by Christ to love. And to speak of him too. And, and so Paul writes a short letter. And most of your Bibles is just two pages. 
And, but in that, in that letter, that 2 Thessalonians, there are five prayers or descriptions of the way Paul prays for this church. And there's a dozen or so themes uh, that these prayers touch on today. I'm just going to touch on a couple of them uh, before we close to give you some sense of how we can learn from Paul's prayers and how we can pray them for our own church. So right out of the bat, the first chapter of this little letter, Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. You drop down to verse 11. He says, to this end, we always pray for you. And the first thing we learn from Paul about praying for your church is that he does it regularly. Elsewhere, he'd say he does it ceaselessly. He says, day and night, I'm praying for the churches that I love. And the scriptures command us similarly. Paul in Ephesians 6 says, to that end, Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication, prayer for all the saints. Um, Paul prayed regularly for the churches, so should we. Now, uh, God's been after me about this this week, about my need to grow in this area. So my commitment to you is that I'm going to pray daily for you these prayers of Paul uh, for the coming year. I'm going to pray daily these great prayers of Paul for you, for the church daily. My challenge to you is I want to ask you to do that weekly. That you would pray the prayers of Paul for our church, for the church you love, on a weekly basis. Some of you may want to join me even doing it daily, but at least weekly. And I'm going to make it really easy for you to do this. Um, if you are in our communication loop, and you should be, give us your email. We're not going to sell it. We're not going to harass you. You'll get one email from the church a week, typically, unless I break the rule. But one email a week is usually what you get. It looks like this. It's called The One, because it's the one email you get from the church. And there's a button on there every week. It looks like Matthew this time, because we're in Matthew, studying Matthew. This Sunday at North Wake. You click on that button. You get the email. You click on that button. It takes you here. This Sunday at North Wake, fabulous little meditation for preparation for worship that Daniel Creswell and some others write. It's amazing. If you do that meditation before you come to church, the worship is better. And the preaching is way better because you didn't come in cold. You took some time to ready your heart. Well, starting this week, at the top of, whoa, at the top up there, there's going to be one of the prayers of Paul from his letters for you to pray for our church. So all you do got to do is click twice when you get that email. And you're there. And you can pray. And I'm going to be praying that prayer every day. Some of you are going to want to join me in that. But hey, Paul prayed these prayers daily for the churches. Surely we can pray them weekly. We are praying the prayers that are central to the will of God for our church, and we're all praying them together, coming before the throne of God, hundreds of us coming before God to ask these blessings on our church. I'm excited to see what God's gonna do with that. Okay. So first thing we learn, pray regularly. The second thing we already touched on, Paul says, um, we are always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. As is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. So the second thing we learn is when you pray for your church, give thanks for your church. Paul's excited about what God's doing here. Their faith is growing, and their love for one another is growing. 
And so Paul says, wow, I love this. I'm thankful for this. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, well, our church is kind of, it's kind of messed up. And I, <laughs> I know. Okay, I know. If I were to speak the local dialect, I know our church is a hot mess. Okay, there's a lot, there are a lot of problems. We're not doing seminars. We're not writing books. Okay, we're buying duct tape and we're praying for our daily bread. Okay, that's our church. That's just where God knows we'll be humble, okay? Um, and there's a lot of sin going around our church, and it's devastating people. And the reason that that's happened is because your pastor has, has been studying sin for 50 years, and he's mastered the art. I know the guy. I'm giving you insider information. He's good at sinning, your pastor. And the people next to you, covert sinners dressed up to look nice in church this morning. <laughs> Don't let them kid you covert sinners sitting next to you. And what about you? <laughs> well, I just say, join the club, okay? Join the club of undeserved, redeemed sinners, okay? A hot mess of undeserved, redeemed sinners. That's who we are, okay? But we are redeemed. We are a redeemed hot mess, Okay? And God's doing some amazing stuff here. Some of it's happening through your prayers for the church, for specific individuals. We have a prayer chain. When someone has a crisis come up, they contact the office, an email goes out, and people pray. You should probably be on that list. Another reason to give us your email. Um, and, and we pray, and God does stuff. Melissa Walker is off the ventilator, and I trust headed towards getting out of ICU and not far away, I pray, from being up here with a microphone in her hand, giving glory to God soon because you guys prayed, okay? Good stuff happening here. You heard Stu talk about it. They lost their house, basically, sold it for what they had in it, had no money to go anywhere else, and somebody said, hey, your family can live with our family. Happens all the time. When you pray for our church, I hope you'll pray for our church. You should give thanks for our church. God's doing a lot of good stuff in this redeemed hot mess called North Wake. And it's coming your way. An eight-lane eight freeway of blessing is coming into your life. Don't, don't fail to give thanks for what God's doing. In our church, give thanks for a church that honors the word. Give thanks for a church that leads you to God to worship him alone, that provides really outstanding mentors for our youth, an incredible discipleship program for our kids, um, that sends missionaries to the darkest places on earth, that gives away cars and food and cares for teenage moms and teaches English to immigrants and helps moms in crisis bring their little ones into the world and care for them. That's your church, okay? That's just a snapshot of your church. You should give thanks for your church. Um, not only because God is doing that good work, but that will safeguard your heart from being discontent about your church. Doug Sherman, in his fantastic book, Your Work Matters to God, is trying to teach us how to be content. Step one is give thanks for what you have. It will protect your heart from being embittered towards your church. Now, we have the very important task of celebrating the Lord's Supper, or privilege to have celebrating the Lord's Supper. 
So let me just show you a couple other things, just glimpse in these prayers, and then we'll, we'll close and go to the table. In 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, verse 11 and 12, he says, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. Pray that the reputation of Jesus is better in our town because people met us. Okay. Um, Verses 16 and 17. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts. You know, people are suffering in our church. They've got cancer. They've got all kinds of maladies. They've lost jobs. They've been deserted by their spouses. Their teenagers are driving them crazy. Uh, Pray. Pray for the comfort of God on our families, on the single who just got told, I just want to be friends. Pray the comfort of God upon these people and what they're facing. Now he says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. Pray for comfort and peace upon our families. You know, these are beautiful ways to prayer, to pray, simple pray, prayers to pray. Um, and let me show you just one, one last one. We'll be done. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. He wants you to know what is the length and width and height and depth of the love of Christ for you. He wants you to know that. He wants you to know that it was demonstrated in the steadfastness of Christ who, Luke tells us, set his face towards Jerusalem and the cross and he would not be deterred. He would not fight in the garden. He would not call down legions of angels to stop the crucifixion. He would not answer Pilate. He would not recant. He would not stop loving you. He was steadfast. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ for you. And as we come to the Lord's table today, that's exactly what we want to do. We want God to direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ for us. That we would know how much God loves us because we remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the meal, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant that's in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me. Would you bow with me? Let's approach the table. Father, now I pray that you would direct this church, your people at North Wake, into the love of God for them and the steadfastness of Christ. May they never forget. May they never um, deny. May they always cherish this above all things. In Jesus, we pray in your name.